Just the day before Thanksgiving, my buddy sent me a news article that told the story of an elementary school in California who had authorized an after-school club for Satanists. Let me say that again. An elementary after-school club for Satanists. I found the timing of this article interesting because just a few days before that, I had a conversation with Russ Barlow about the state of public education. Now, for those who haven't listened to Russ's first time on the podcast, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 35. Now, on this episode, Russ and I take a deep dive on how modern education has got to the point it has in regards to indoctrinating our children. As Russ and I explore the origins of public education, there are many points at which I get freaked the hell out on just how evil and insidious the design was. By three-quarters of the way into our conversation, you will no longer be wondering how a story like the one I mentioned earlier can happen in public education. But here's the good news. At the very end of our conversation, Russ gives a very candid answer on what we can do as parents to save our children. Now, in a first for this podcast, I've included video for this episode. The reason I did this is I felt that the visuals that Russ uses are super important. So you can either see that here at the website or at my YouTube channel, Mormon Renegade Podcast. For those who prefer just to listen, that format is still available as well. That's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I just want to take a moment to thank you, the listener. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would really listen. Now, to my surprise, this thing has taken on a life of its own. And that's all due to you, the listener, spending your time here with me, and it means a great deal to me. Now, as a husband and father, I'm keenly aware of how important time is. It feels like there's just never enough of it. So when you are spending your time here listening to this podcast, I feel a responsibility to never waste your time. In that spirit, as this podcast has grown, I feel like I need to do you, the listener, justice. I want to continue to produce good content and upgrade the audio quality. That takes better equipment and better software, and that all takes money. Now, I've tried to advertise, but you'd be surprised. There's not a lot of people wanting to advertise on a Mormon fundamentalist podcast. I know, surprising, right? Now, if you want to help support the podcast, you can do that one of two ways. The first is go over to mormonrenegade.com and hit the Donate tab. There you can make a one-time donation, or you can go ahead and set it up to be a monthly recurring donation. Your choice entirely. Now, option number two, because I'm a capitalist, if you want to head on over to mormonrenegade.com, click on the store button, you're going to find that we've got some new swag out. we got some t-shirts, we have a tote, we have cell phone cases, water bottles, coffee cups, we got a bunch of stuff and more is going to be on the way. So, if you feel like that's something you could do, again, head on over to Mormon Renegade and check all that stuff out. If you're not in that position to do so, I completely understand. We're all squeezed right now with high gas prices and high inflation. So, even if you can't, please keep listening and maybe keep the podcast in your prayers so we can continue to grow, produce good content, and better audio quality. Thank you. Listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, 
Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com. So go check that out. Well, I'm back again with with Russ Barlow. And after our first episode, which was just absolutely phenomenal, I had a great time talking to Russ. And I'm not even a science guy, but once Russ and I talked, I found myself diving headfirst into a lot of stuff because he just kind of helped open that door for me. So uh, it, it, to me, that first episode was was amazing, and I got a lot of reviews off of it. And towards the end, after we had um, stopped recording, Russ had shown me something and talked to me a little something about um, a presentation that he had given about education in America and the church. And as he talked about it, um, not only could I feel his passion for it, but I really felt the spirit kind of move that, that this is important and this needs to get out there. And so that's what we're doing this time. We're, we're going to, to, to talk about what's going on in the educational system in America and, and how it's faltering. But I think more important than that is that Russ actually provides um, solutions. He doesn't just point out the problem. He, he points to solutions. And that is, that's pretty refreshing in today's day and age. So Russ, I'm, I'm so happy to have you back on. Thanks for making time for me again, man. You know, I appreciate it. And, and I'm hoping that we get to do this again, because I know I've had a lot of people ask me to take the science a little bit further, talk about things like age of the earth and uh, carbon dating always comes up. How, how do we deal with carbon dating or other radiometric dating? So we get to talk about that sometime in the future, Dave. Absolutely. I, Russ, I'll be honest with you. I told you this before and I mean it. Once you've been on once, you have a standing invitation to come back on whenever you want. And I'm more than game for it. I'll make all sorts of time to, to talk about this stuff with you. Right on. Well, today, I appreciate you inviting me because what I want to talk about, it seems like it's a bit of a departure from science, but it's actually not. It kind of brings it all to, to together. And what I mean by that is we've got education, we've got science, and we've got covenant path, and we've got the gospel. It kind of all tied together and it's and i think when we get through with this you'll see some interesting ties and in how it works now this comes from a presentation that i gave at the book of mormon expo and and i found it interesting because when i was kind of pondering and praying about what message i should give the word that kept coming to mind was apostasy and both in america and in the church and, and i don't this isn't directed any leadership this is directed at us as a people and I'm just as much a part of that, too, as this apostasy is, is that we have allowed things to come into our homes. We've taught our children and we've done things. We've sort of set ourselves up to be the apostate generation because we either haven't known or we willfully kind of turned against some of the gospel that we know is very true. So now it seems like I'm being a little harsh, but I think when we get through this today, you'll see, and I hopefully will share some thoughts that people can make some changes in their own homes and uh, and start this turn get us turned around to the basic foundations of the of the gospel you know i i think i think that's great and and i'm with you i don't think this is anything that i think parents did knowingly right i think this is something that probably i'll be honest i've probably been guilty of it myself right i mean <sighs> 
I remember there was a time that my wife actually came to me and said, you know, we need to start prioritizing here a little bit because we're involved in all this stuff and none of it's bad, right? It's taking kids here to this activity or, or, you know, we got football practice over here or whatever it was, but it was just too much. And, and what we found is, is that we were losing that time with our kids. And I think that's a lot of what parents face now is that in order to try to make their kids well-rounded or, or whatever, whatever the case is, we just bog ourselves down and we don't have time to really connect as a family. Right. And, and we've actually let outside influences sort of dictate to us what family is. And that's including school. And, and I would even go so far as to say that we've farmed out our religion when we send our kids off to primary or young men's and young women's. We've sort of sent them away to be taught by someone else. Now, that someone else may be uh, well-intended and they may even be very spiritual, but it's still we're sending our kids away rather than taking the responsibility ourselves. That is not to say we shouldn't participate in the things that our churches are doing and the things that we should be involved in those but we should literally be involved, meaning us be there, be a part, know what's going on, teaching our children, be much more active in it. Absolutely. So let's, let's, let, let's start with First Nephi. And this is where Lehi has a dream. Most people that have read the Book of Mormon are going to be really familiar with this, right? So this is where Lehi says, I beheld a great and spacious building, and it stood as it were in the air, high above the earth. This is the thing that we kind of look over because we see that they're scoffing and they're and they're, they're old and young and male and female, and their manner of dress was exceedingly fine. And they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who were partaking of the fruit that Lehi had seen. They were, he was at the fr uh, tree eating the fruit, and so were um, other people, and he was looking for his family. And the building that he saw is a building without a foundation. It's built in the air it doesn't have a solid foundation but the people in it are there mocking and then he says this he says after they tasted of the fruit they were ashamed and they fell away into forbidden paths what really he was saying is that they're embarrassed and that's what's happened to a lot of our kids today is they're embarrassed because their their friends start talking about evolution if they were to come to school and say evolution isn't true, they'd be mocked. If they were to come and say the earth is a water earth, oh my goodness. They say that even in our own churches. My son was at his in church sharing his ideas about that the earth was exactly as it was in Genesis. He had every single kid and the teachers mock him for that. At church? At church. Oh, that's so, supposed to be the refuge, right? I mean, that's, that's right. Supposed that's supposed to be the place you go where you can just kind of exhale and, and kind of, you know, to use the wokesters term, feel a little safe. Right. Well, the bottom line is, is it should be a place, especially when you have somebody that says, Hey, the scriptures are true. Exactly what's said. And to, to mock them, to, you know, tease them, make them feel dumb. And that's, yeah. that's what they did. And I have one of my older sons went to college and, he had me do a presentation about a lot of the science that's related to the universal model to his in-laws who were very highly educated people. And they mocked him so mercilessly that he just kind of crumbled and just, I mean, since that day he's felt bad and he, he's supportive of me, but he just thinks that it's, I'm a crackpot because uh -huh. 
it's not it's not real science right you know and this has really opened my eyes a lot and i've kind of started a journey a little bit and that is to see in in first nephi after lehi has this vision nephi asks that he can see the same vision and that whole series starts in first nephi chapter 11 and it covers four chapters and one of those chapters chapter 13 it talks about the formation of America and we see the Book of Mormon coming forth and we see the man that is wrought upon that comes across the many waters. We recognize that guy as being Columbus. So those are kind of things that we just accept. But it starts out by saying, thou seest the formation of a great church that is most abominable above all other churches. So side by side with the restoration of the gospel is this great and abominable church they're forming side by side things are happening and if we trace modern education back to its roots it actually starts with the university system and you probably remember remember in high school the rivalries we had against our high schools right yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah that absolutely started because of the way they divided people in the universities and they would throw their insults at each other and that whole thing that so that whole rivalry started with the universities And even today, high schools sort of model themselves after a particular college or university of choice. Like our kids went to Del Sol, and they had the same colors and the same chant as the University of Southern California, USC. Wow. And so, so, you know, that's what's happening is our high schools are sort of modeled after the university ideal, even down to the cap and gown and the robes, you know, so we're just kind of training them into this. But if we talk about how it's related to the gospel, let me tell you a story about this guy right here, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter. And if you've gone to public school in the last hundred years, you had to read that book because that was required reading usually for high school and if not college that you had to read and and make some kind of report on that. You might think, okay, why this particular book? Well, Nathaniel Hawthorne was born in Salem, Massachusetts. He's actually the descendant on both sides of Puritan stock, but he hated the Puritans. He hated his Puritan Christian background. His third great-grandfather arrived in 1630, and his second great-grandfather was one of the judges during the Salem witch trials that judged the witches, and, and no doubt on flimsy evidence, But the bottom line is that he hated that association with what his father had done and what it stood for. Now, there was, this was a pretty crazy time. And so there's no doubt there was a lot of things that was being told. But what ultimately stopped the witch trials were the Puritan pastors. They're the ones that said, this is not biblical. And they put a stop to it for solid biblical reasons. They were the ones. I remember reading uh, about that, that that somehow that fact gets conveniently left out of the narrative, right? Is that it was it was biblical pastors who came forward and said, this has got to stop. You guys are 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 all wet on this on this issue. But um, Nathaniel, he hated the Puritan ideology. And he described Cotton Mather. Now, Cotton Mather, that's kind of an interesting name, right? He's the son of a man named Increase. (laughs) Increase married a woman with the last name Cotton. 
And that's why they named their son Cotton, so Cotton Mather. But he was a clergyman, and he actually wrote this incredible book that was The Dealings of Christ in America. And it's truly, it, it's a really thick book. It's hard to read because it's a lot of words. And it talked about the gloriousness of all the things that happened and how God's hand was in America in those early days. Well, Nathaniel Hawthorne hated Cotton Mather to the point where he called him a bloodthirsty man akin to the devil himself. So <laughs> this was a guy that really disliked his Puritan ancestors. So, so they're not trading like Christmas cards back and forth then. Him, him and Cotton are on a... Well, Cotton Mather was, was clear back in the 1600s, so he's dead, but he had the most influence on okay. this Christian ideology. And, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's actually born a year... Uh, the same time as Joseph Smith, great. Right? Oh, wow. 1804. So he's he's growing up in the same era as Joseph Smith. Well, what's interesting here is that he, he tells his mother, he says, I'm going to be a writer. He writes her a letter. And he wrote in his letter, authors are always poor devils, and therefore Satan may take them. And maybe that was a little foretelling. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that that that's a lot foretelling. Yep. And see, this is what happens is that he he ends up dating a witch himself. He allows his wife to visit a medium. Now, I mean, you might think, oh, that's weird. What do you mean he allows? Well, in, in 1800s, you know, women did what their husbands asked them to do. And so for him to for her to go to a medium and a necromancer, that's a, like a wizard or a right. warlock, you know, that was with his permission, his blessing. So he's kind of in this witches medium spiritualist kind of kind of a thing and his oldest daughter was a medium now this is the same Ooh. era as what joseph smith was growing up in and there have been anti-mormon we're going to get to this um, writings that tried to make joseph a part of this counter christian world of magic and and uh, necromancy and the medium and that kind of stuff. And it's totally false. It's a way of trying to take one worldview. And just because Joseph grow, grew up in an area that, 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 that some of that was going on, they tried to make him be part of that. But just like we grow up in our world today, we, there are definitely things that we're not a part of, but are happening concurrently with our own growing up. You know, so. You know, Russ, I, I, I want to just interject here real quick. It's interesting that you bring this up right now because I'm actually um, reading a book called Karl Marx and the Devil by Paul oh. Kangor. And it, it's interesting that in this time period, because, you know, Marx is coming up about the same time as Joseph Smith, right? A little older, but, it, you know, they, they were around essentially at the same time. Now, Marx didn't get, get popular, so to speak, till well after his death. But what I find interesting is that at the same time you got Joseph Smith coming up and restoring the gospel, it seems that on the flip side, you have darkness rising as well. For um, sure. If you'll hold your thought on him, he's he's a part of this whole discussion. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, I, so it's totally okay. I'm going to set the stage so that when you get to him, you're going to see something. And we often think of Marx as communism, but I'm going to show you how else he fits in to this worldview that we're that we're going to talk about right here okay okay anyway so um just to kind of re recapitulate or, or to recap what we've said here is that cotton mather 
he writes this work called Magnalia Christi Americana, and it's the glorious works of Christ in America. And Nathaniel Hawthorne hates this guy because of he's literally going to try to divorce us from our Christian roots in this book that he's going to publish in 1850. Okay, so this is actually just 20 years after the Book of Mormon's published. It's only uh, 17 years after the Bible has been published, and it's only six years after Joseph has been martyred. So this is the time frame. This is the area that, that all this is going on. Now, it's also interesting that he was born in 1804, just, just a year older than Joseph Smith. And Joseph actually and Sidney Rigdon with some friends go back to Salem, Massachusetts, where this guy lived probably right while he's in the middle of writing this and they're looking for treasure that somebody said is in an old house, kind of like people look for Spanish treasure. So they go there, they don't find any treasure and the Lord gives them a revelation that says there is much treasure to be found in this city. Well, it turns out that treasure is his ancestry. This is where the Smith ancestry is from. So there are two things going on right here. You've got this blood of Israel returning, and then you've got the rise of the spiritualist and witches and things that are happening. And that's all we think of today. We think of witches when we think of Salem. We don't think so much of Joseph Smith and his ancestry. Right. That's just Satan's way of twisting that up, right? So Nathaniel Hawthorne publishes this book, but he says... He writes this book, he said, as if under compulsion and called it a hell, hell-fired story. He wrote the whole book in 19 days. Wow. So what's the theme of, of this book? Okay, the theme, it's built around adultery. Its primary theme is guilt and sin. Now, the story is, is that a Puritan minister named Dimsdale has an affair with a married woman. And she gets pregnant. She's going to have a baby. So through the course of this, he spends seven years just torturing himself, feeling terrible. And he finally confesses, not to Christ, not so much as a confessional to as repentance, but more of just a confession to admit. And then she later on, she just wears her scarlet A. That's what the scarlet letter is, the A for adultery. She just kind of wears it proudly and talks about how it's too bad that her daughter has to suffer um, this slight, but, you know, she's not going to even hide it anymore. She's going to be proud of her adultery. And so what it does is it kind of breaks apart what it means to have the atonement and what it means to be Christian. And, and so there's sin and guilt and, and admission and confession, and, but nothing to return, nothing to, re, to reclaim the soul. No atonement. It's, it's a break it apart. Yes, there's no atonement. So you might say, well, what, what does that matter? Why does that matter? The reason is books change society, right? The written Absolutely. word, it always has. Books change society. And because this has been required reading, whether we know exactly what its underlying message is, we have been taught the ideas of what is in the Scarlet Letter as our foundational ideas of what Puritanism and Pilgrimism is. And we've thought of them as stodgy, as being too harsh, as being looking down their nose and, you know, not treating people right. But this is the whole thing that he wanted to twist around and do that. 
And here's the thing is that um, I was reading a book the other day and it says no single publication of any genre has been so effective at severing a nation from its Christian heritage. That's what the author Kevin Swanson wrote in his book about this one book. And so what is he implying? He's fixated on the demon world through his whole life, Hawthorne is. And he's also, he's implying that witchcraft, homosexuality, adultery, and incest is more acceptable than what the Puritans were standing for, what they taught. Mm. So that was his method, is to say all these things are more acceptable than our Puritan ancestors. Yes. So you might ask yourself, can a bitter fountain bring forth good water? No. No. Right. Here's the next book. Have you ever heard of that book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Popular book, right? Right. Published 1851. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, writes this letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he says, I have written a wicked book myself by the same rushing demon that affected Hawthorne. Oh, jeez. Oh, I feel so like these are the classics, right? Right. And so, and Herman Melville's born in New York in 1819. He's the same kind of, this is the same era, right? Right. And so you all of these things that are considered our classics that are the foundation of all of our literature in the school system. So we've got that. How about this guy right here, though? Mark Twain. You've heard of him? Yeah, yeah. Mark Twain's born in 1835. So this is just five years after the church has been organized. This is still nine years before Joseph um, is martyred. So he's not really kind of on the scene when Joseph is on the scene, but he does meet Brigham Young later. But let's hold off to that just for a minute, because um, let's talk about Mark Twain writing The Adventures of Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn. I'm sure you've read that book, too. Most yep. of us have. It's on our shelves. Now, I'm, what I'm not really trying to say here is that every piece of literature and everything that we've ever read is bad, but it's just a way of opening our eyes to this kind of foundation of what we've taught our children. And a lot of times we want to homeschool our kids, but then we bring them in and we homeschool them the same things that the school's teaching, thinking we're going to give them a better education. And all we're doing is teaching them the same foundation of this kind of anti-Christian, anti-foundational, um, you know, word when we think of the classics or classic education. And I just want to bring attention to it so that we are a little more careful about thinking that just turning to the classics is the right way to go. So Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain's a lovable, fun guy, right? Mark Twain's probably the most well-known of all the authors. And that's... You know, that's great, except there's <laughs> things to know about him, right? Now, he does visit the Mormons in Salt Lake City, he actually comes to Salt Lake City in 1872 with his brother Orion. So he has a brother named Orion. This is Ryan Clemens because his name Samuel Clemens, even though he goes by Mark Twain. It's Orion Clemens that goes to Salt Lake with him and he visits with Brigham Young and tries to get Brigham Young to laugh, but he doesn't. And after the meeting, Brigham Young's large hand gets on top of Twain's head. And he says to Twain's brother, Orion, he says, ah, your child, I presume, boy or girl? I remember hearing that story. 
yeah, it was it was kind of a fun exchange there. Just kind of a like gentle slap in the face. Yeah. Right. And so um, let's get back to that. There we go. So for most of his life, Mark Twain had cloaked his atheism in humor. Okay, so he was a Christian. A lot of these guys were born in Christian backgrounds. They were they, they were very knowledgeable about it because they grew up in it. And then they just weren't themselves. And he was an atheist. And so he mocked Christianity. He mocked everything about Christianity and, and the dysfunctional elements, he called them. And so, you know, it was just kind of secret. That's what he did. So in 18 or by 1906, in his biography, Mark Twain reveals a complete break with the Christian faith. He told his publisher, tomorrow, I mean to dictate a chapter which will get my heirs and assigns burned alive if they venture to print it this side of AD 2006. You know, that's that's remarkably close to a date. You know what I mean? I mean, that's... There we are, right? Yeah, holy cow. I. It really bugs me that he was that prophetic about it. So he actually did try to publish it. There were those to try to publish it back in the 1920s, but the publishing houses wouldn't. They did finally publish it in the 1860s, okay? Okay. So he's, he's a talented writer. His writing is fantastic, but he's also a clever liar. So, you know, he was like Satan. He's just a very clever liar. He hated God. And he wrote his school, he wrote his story to the school-aged masses to help them in their own apostasy. That's kind of the whole thrust of it. And when you, you know, a lot of people will disagree. Oh, you know, Huck Finn's a great story, and so is Tom Sawyer. And they there's some really interesting and fun things to read about that. But he really reveals what he was about when he starts talking about the Bible. He says it's the most damnatory biography that exists in print anywhere. And he referred to God as repulsive, vindictive, and malignant. Hmm. And then in 1909, he transcribes what he calls a message from Satan himself, entitles it Letters cool. of Truth. Okay, so this is right before he dies. He is he's he comes clean. He admits where he really is, and he dictates this message. He said it was from Satan himself, and in it he said. The Bible is a blood-drenched history, a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. <laughs> wow. This book is consciously evil, and in it, he exhorts women to the high privileges of unlimited adultery. <sighs> Again, Jeez. you have to ask yourself, can a bitter fountain bring forth good water? Now, he was this bitter fountain through his whole life but it was couched and hidden in his atheism and his hate for God and his disdain was carefully hidden, but he was there. That was his point. Now, Hawthorne mocked Christianity, but Twain unashamedly bashed every symbol and sacrament of the Christian faith. That's That was his attack overtly on top of it. And if you read Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, you'll see how it's a mockery of that Christianity, of 19th century Christianity. That's what his whole thing was about. Now, there were lots of other writers, lots of human atheist influences literature, like Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville. Those are a couple. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Steinbeck, Walt Whitman. These guys all had their thing that they were doing. They were all writing and they were trying to normalize homosexuality. They were trying to normalize adultery and all of the things like in Herman Melville, we didn't talk about this when he talked about Moby Dick. What's its underlying theme? It's revenge. It's right. revenge to the point that you, you destroy everything and everyone in your life. And so all of those, it's kind of normalizing and actually glorifying the sin that we're supposed to be trying to overcome. So in all, what kingdom are these authors building? And when we read them, what kingdom are we supporting? Yeah, the adversaries. All right, you mentioned this guy. Oh, Karl Marx. Yeah, he's he's such a, just such a, a jovial guy, isn't he? Karl Marx is a Christian. He's born in eighteen eighteen. So again, if we just put it in context, he's born just. Uh, 13 years after Joseph Smith, this is kind of, now he's not in America, he's not knowing what's going on here, but he's, this is the same time frame, and he has a profound effect on the world, and indirectly, he brought about the deaths of more people than probably anyone else in history. Yeah. And he yeah. published this book, Communist Manifestos, published in 1848. You <laughs> see the, see how these things are kind of all together yep. in that time frame? Yep. So Marx had an impact on the actual events as well as on the minds of men and women more than any other intellectual in modern times. And he was a writer and he was a playwright. He loved mm -hmm. the arts. He was a Lutheran turned atheist. He glorified in his total rejection of theism. And between 85 and 200 million people have died because of Marxist ideologies during the last century. If you rounded up all of this, the, the Roman emperors over the last 400 years, they killed between 10 and 100 times less. Jeez. All of the emperors over a 400 year period. And, all of the emperors. Of you know, one guy. And, and it's just remarkable, right? So I tore my ACL like, five years ago and i had a lot of time just to hang out and because i'm a massive nerd russ i went back to college not to seek a degree but just to take some courses i would find interesting and so i took a bunch of courses on political science and when they talk about marx man is there a lot of adulation there is there a lot of of you know this i can say with complete knowledge having been there they don't talk about all the people that he ultimately was responsible for killing because you don't have Mao. You don't have any of the other communist dictators unless you have Marx. Now, did you know Marx was a prolific writer mm -hmm. and in his first work, he spoke of the importance of a believer's relationship with Jesus Christ. So yes. Marx starts out as a Christian author writing about the importance of that but it doesn't really take long before his plays kind of take a dark turn and this gross blasphemy pours from his heart he even said some things like this he says i wish to avenge myself against the one who rules above that's pretty direct right 
He yeah. says, so God has snatched from me my all in the curse and rack of destiny. All his words have gone beyond recall. Nothing but revenge is left to me. I shall build my throne high overhead. So that, that sounds a lot like the words that Lucifer used when he says seeks to build his throne above God's in heaven, right? Yeah. And and if you read some of his plays, I mean he he always plays the part of uh either Lucifer himself or somebody who's willing to sell his soul. If I'm not mistaken, he has a a man crush on the guy who wrote Faust, right? And the 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 devil's bargain. And he he refers back to that time and time again. He feels a kinship there. Well, you might imagine that the dark mist, the, the mist of darkness that Lehi and Nephi, uh, Lehi and Nephi saw in their dream. It's it's like this guy em, embodies that dark, hellish hue of that mist of darkness, doesn't he? He does. And yeah. what he said, too, he also said, then I will walk triumphantly like a god through the ruins of their kingdom. Every word of mine is fire and action. My breast is equal to that of the creator. Yep. And to kind of give you an idea where he's he's got death on his mind all the time. He even says this. He says that the sword, and he's referring to allegorically to this. He says, the prince of darkness sold it to me, for he beats the time and gives the signs. And ever more boldly, I play the dance of death. This is all foreshadowing the death that will come as the result of Marxist ideologies. So I, I want to ask you a question, Russ, and, and this is something that that I I haven't been able to get <clears throat> a real good answer on myself. I have some theories, but they're just theories. Do you think all these people knew what they were doing? Do you think that they knew they were on the side of of darkness? Or do you think that somewhere they thought that maybe they were just trying to advance um, humanity? Well, um, you know, I, I believe that there's some part of that possibly, but when you actually read words like Marx is saying that I wish to avenge myself against the one who rules above, this is an outright challenge to God. Right. When you have Daniel Hawthorne admitting that this is written from the fires of hell, and he says that he knows he's going to be taken by Satan. And when Herman Melville says, I've written my own evil book, you know, uh, to the depth or to the degree of how much they knew, I don't know, but it's it certainly seems like they knew they were dancing with the devil in some way. They they were playing with this, and they knew they were going against convention. They were trying to break that down. They were friends, like with Walt Whitman. He's a poet, but he's also um, homosexual, and, and most of his poems were written, and they kind of have this homosexual bent to them at a time when that wouldn't be heard of. And so, yeah, I think they, they did know. And I think that shows up even as we go on and some of these other, the other things, you know, I, their purpose is outright to stand against God. I, I think you're right. I, I've looked at it and I, I just wanted to see if I was too far out there in left field, but especially Marx, as, as I've read more and more about Marx, I think at some point he may have actually made a deal, right? I, I, I really do. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. 
For sure. So even though we're not really talking about communism for Marx, we're going to talk about just what's in this book. The overall core statement of the Communist Manifesto is that we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education with social. That's the core statement. So all this stuff about communism is actually secondary to this core statement. And how do we get communism? The first thing we need to do, replace home education with social. And then I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think is the most hallowed of relations, Dave? Boy, I think it would be, it would, uh, I think first and foremost, it's the relationship between you and your God. And then I think you have you and your wife and then you and your children. Yeah, I think you're right. I'd like to add one thing, though. I'd like to add that the most hallowed relation is between a father and his family and his children. Now, in Malachi, we read in the last chapter, last verse, this is sort of the closing um, account of the Old Testament. It says that I will send Malachi, he will send you know, this power, this sealing power, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. Well, Joseph actually, when Moroni comes and speaks to Joseph during the, just before the Book of Mormon's published, he changes that a little. He says that he will send to plant the hearts of the promises made to the fathers, okay, and, and will plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. So, no, if you think about when a child is born, his first conception of God is his father. He doesn't have a figure to think of. He doesn't hasn't seen any paintings yet. So he doesn't really have any way to conceive of who God is, except he sees his father. So as a father, we have literal responsibility to act as if we are the archetype of God, because we are to our children. Now, eventually, of course, they're going to learn and they're going to become detached and separate themselves and get their own relationship. But at the first, for however many months or years, there is a period of time where the father represents God. When the child kneels down and prays for the first time in his mind, he's going to see the man that he knows. That's how God's going to look. And so, you know, your children's God has a, a beard like you. And that's just because how we've how we conceive of that. And, and I think the Lord knows that. And so that hallowed relationship is really the father. And what's the most, what, what have they gone after in the whole education and the whole modern world has gone after first. They've gone after the father, destroy the father in the home. And then after that, then they go after the women through women's rights. Right. And the, the whole feminism movement. Right. And then they'll finally get to the kids, which is where they are now. So they can, we've literally lost the dads. We've lost the fathers. And, and when I say that, I'm, I'm just as much saying that about me. Because we have become absorbed in our work. We've become absorbed in our world of trying to make money. And we, we don't want to take the time to spend with our children. And dads need to be involved in the education of their kids. They need to be home at least some of the time even if they have to structure a job to the best of their ability. And there are ways you can do it. Like, for example, my wife and I, she started this. She would have me give the kids an assignment. And then I had to give, I had to check their rough draft on Thursday. And that was the best we had when they were younger. I wish I'd spent more time, but at least we did that. And she could spend the whole week teaching 
And the kids cared more about my ref draft on Thursday than everything she taught them. And, and so I was the hero. I got all the credit. She got all the hard work. But the kids need dads in their, in their schooling lives to the best of our abilities. And when I was younger, a younger dad, I thought that was totally my wife's responsibility. I'd go to work. You take care of the kids. And that's just not right. It's I, I feel like I've got to be more involved in that. No, I, I definitely think you're right. I, I lost my dad at a young age. But I think I thank my God every day that I had my dad when I for the time I did, because he was a great dad. And you are 100 percent correct. Um, I can remember it, it was a, such a weird realization that I remember thinking, why is it when I think, and, and I was 13 still at the time, right? Um, that for some reason, my dad's characteristics are characteristics I, I projected on God. Um, we all do. Yeah. And, and so, no, you're, you're absolutely 100% correct. I think if we as fathers will think of that, think my child is thinking of me as God, how am I standing up to that? I think it does have an impact. It has on me. Oh, and really? I'm not saying that there are a lot of unconventional families and we have to do the best we can. This is not a judgment on that. This is just a statement of fact that fathers have been taken and stolen away from the families collectively. You know, that that's the general thing. And so plank number 10, you know, this core statement coming back to the Communist Manifesto, this core statement of destroying the most hallowed of relations, that's reflected in plank number 10 of the Communist Manifesto. And that is that free education for all children in public school, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form and a combination of education with industrial production. Now, at the time in 1848, the child's factory labor primarily consisted of working in the family business, right. whether that was a blacksmith shop, a cooperage, or on the farm. And so it was taking it away, take them, take them out of that and prepare them to work in the industrial world. It's, it it kind of looks like, oh, yeah, we want to protect our kids from factory labor. No, no. Get them out of the home get them out of the home business and prepare them to be worker bees. It's a social construct. Okay. So the first thing you want to do then is make that happen. Well, it just so happens in 1852, just four years after this is published, Massachusetts becomes the first to pass compulsory school attendance. And, and it's, it's done in all 50 States by 1918. True. So the whole United States has now become a compulsory state for education. Let's talk about a fast and hard fall. Right. 50 years is barely one generation. In one generation, they were able to, to get that done. And it, it's interesting about this time period. I just got done reading a book about uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was our first, quote, academic president. And I remember he had a very telling statement that he made, which was our whole point of education, both college and public, is to make a boy as much unlike his father as possible. 
That's right. Let's talk about how that actually happened with this guy right here, Horace Mann. So he's he's uh, born in 1796. He's about uh, nine years older than Joseph Smith. He's born in Massachusetts, um, just 35 miles from Plymouth and Salem, kind of in that same area. He was raised Orthodox, Puritan, a Calvinist, but he turned to Unitarianism. Unitarianism means that they just dismissed the, the Trinity and they kind of went off off the rails in a different direction. This guy's a delegate in Massachusetts. And so he's he's actually the guy that makes the compulsory education happen in Massachusetts. And so you see this, you, you see how this Puritan descendants are actually the fighters. These guys were Christian converted to things that are not quite so Christian. And this guy, Horace Mann, did more to establish in the minds of the American people the conception that education should be universal, non-sectarian, and free. That's the whole thing, is convince people that it needed to be all the same and it needed to be non-sectarian and free. And the whole point was to get people to be socially efficient, so we fit within this social ideal, right? Not the family, not your religion, but social. And that character meaning trained by the schools, character was something that was more than just being taught by your religion, your sectarianism, right? Right. Was, even though he was opposed by the ministers of his day, that they saw what he was doing, they still gave way and it was finally overcome. So this was the first state to fall. And it was because of this guy. This guy, Horace Mann, he's the one that kind of starts the public education push. Notice his death date, 1859. Same day that this or the same year this guy dies, the next guy that is in line is going to be born. Okay. Um, before we leave this guy, before we leave Horace Mann, uh, he hated the Puritan faith of his forefathers. So this is the same thing that Nathaniel Hawthorne hated the faith of his forefathers. This is the same thing that these all these guys like Mark Twain, they all hate the faith of their forefathers. They want to get rid of it. They don't want any part of it. Why? So I, I want to ask the question here. Why? Because even as early as 1859 you you definitely begin to see the fruits of of this american experiment begin to take root and it it takes root because uh, un, unlike most if not all of the other european nations all of the Euro, the all of europe excuse me we our government makes a covenant at the beginning with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see the benefits of that covenant. So sure. what do you think inspires this hate from these men of the thing this, that this made battle, us very great? For sure. This battle is a pre-mortal war. And, and the thing is, is if you understand, that's why the science and the education and, and the covenant all come together, because the war was fought exactly in the same way in the pre-mortal life. This is not new. It's the same words that were being said before we were born. It's the same battle. It's the same ideals. And, and we're fighting against an ongoing battle. It's not new. It's the same battle. And so 
Where is it going to be? Satan's going to come right at the crux of it. Now, you're right. We made a covenant. The, the pilgrims made the covenant, the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact. Puritans adopt that covenant. Then later on, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution become the American covenant. It's a it's literally American scripture, and it declares things that are from God. God says that he raised up men for that express purpose. So, yes, we have all of these things, and Satan is coming after to destroy this, and he's coming after it. And in a way, he's he's taking it down this road of education. And I think where you see that it gets, it becomes so plain, and I'm not trying to be this doomsday or guy that says this but what i'm saying is let's open our eyes and we need to realize what america was built on was the family business that was the single thing it was the family business that that allowed us to to go out and not only raise our farm crops that we ate but we had a business like a, a cooperage where they would make barrels or a cobbler where they'd make shoes or a blacksmith shop or or you know whatever they did, and there was some pretty high tech stuff they did. Brigham Young was a glazier, a glass man. John Taylor got the, the sugar beet. Yeah. Uh, plant. So there was a lot of complex and things that were, you know, business was was important, and in getting our families involved in the family business, I think is now more important than ever. We we have a bigger. I mean, I, we're going off a little bit here, but think about this. What is God's business? When Christ was in the temple. He says, I must be about my father's business. What is God's business? To bring to pass the eternal life and immortality of man. Exactly. So we are engaged in that business, or at least we should be, as believers, as part of the tribe, part of Israel. Israel is, is in our father's business. So more importantly than driving truck or you're a surveyor, I'm a window guy. More important than the work that we do is the influence that we have on our children and our communities to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Absolutely. All right, let's go past Horace Mann to the next guy. In 1859, this guy is born oh I, I forgot one one thing on this were these were the six principles that Horace Mann instituted in the public education thing I need this because it's going to set the stage for what the next guy does so these are the six things one that public school the public should no longer remain ignorant okay what does that mean I'm guessing ignorant is is a is a term that doesn't mean what it originally meant much like I think, I think it means exactly that but they're applying it to knowledge about evolution and about okay this is this is all in the you know this is this is after um darwin has come on the scene this is after the this scientists and the education community is already pushing these concepts now darwin's book isn't published till 1858 but this is the time when all of this is happening, right? This is the yeah. this is that period. It's all being pushed. And so ignorant means you're not aware of what modern science is telling you about the age-old earth. And then, of course, taxes. You know, we need to all pay for it. So we're going to be taxed for education. 
that education will be best provided in schools that embrace children from a variety of backgrounds. That sounds good, but what really is the underlying thing there? Uh, probably to make sure that things like Darwinism and, and, you know, hardcore secularism are taught. And that there's no differentiation between religions. If you want to believe this religion, we're going to, we're going to equalize everybody so that they're, they're, they can start looking at and getting rid of their, you know, that's Satan's ultimate goal is to have a one world religion. That's what he's going to do is, and it's going to be his religion, not ours. And so you bring these different backgrounds and you erase family traditions and culture and try to bring them together. Number four, education must be secular. So that means get rid of God. Number five, the tenets of a free society would be taught to all. What's the difference between freedom and liberty? Liberty is, is by law within the confines of God's law, where freedom is free of those laws. So free society is actually not necessarily the freedom that's embodied in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Freedom is free of the confines of God telling us what we can and can't do. I see. And liberty is freedom within God's law. Exactly. And we never fought for freedom when we were fighting the for the uh, when we were fighting the British for our own. We were fighting for liberty. Right. And there's it's an important distinction to to recognize that. Number six is that instruction be, should be provided by well-trained professional teachers. <laughs> so what does that mean, right? What does well-trained professional teachers mean? I would think well-trained would be toting the 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 propaganda for for the state. Precisely, indoctrinated to what they what they do, right? So Anyway, that leaving horse man, he's a Massachusetts state legislature that brings in this stuff. Okay, so he's the guy that brings that in. And then the next guy on the scene is John Dewey. Now, if you read Woodrow Wilson, you probably read about John Dewey because he's around the same time. He's born in 1859. Like everyone else, he starts out a Christian. I mean, all of these people we've been talking about start out as Christian. And he's born into a solid family. But he tells his dad he wants to go to college and his father is heartbroken because he knows what's going to happen in the university. But to prove his dad wrong, he joins the Student Christian Association. He's going to you know, show his dad, hey, I'm, I'm really good. And he gives his first speech and he talks about the obligation to the knowledge of God. He said belief was a, not a privilege, but a duty to believe in God. And that's how he starts his college career. He writes his first book called Psychology. Okay, and that's all it's called, is Psychology. And he argues that logic proves God is a necessity. Uh, he starts, sounds like he starts off really good in college. Like a lot of people, though, when we you probably heard this, kids say, oh, our kids have got to have their peers, right? They've got to have. We're, we're afraid they're going to be socially backward if we don't let them have their friends. Like, when do kids ever learn anything good from their peers, really? <laughs> you're oh. right. You're right. No, you're you're 100% right. Kids need to learn from mom and dad. They can associate with peers. Mom and dad are the ones they need to learn from, not peers. Well, John Dewey started choosing his peers, his mentors. And choosing your friends is important, right? Who you choose 
has a huge impact on where you're going to go. And he chooses this guy, G. Stanley Hall. And he's G. Stanley Hall is an absolute Darwin fanatic. And he's a full-blown eugenicist, which means Ooh, yeah. people that aren't the perfect people should die. Yep. The people that are too old, too young, too black, too Jew, too, too Down syndrome, too deaf, whatever. Whatever defect, they should not be a part of the system. And go ahead. I was going to say, I, I read up on this a little bit. I remember... It was back when Barack Obama was running for his first term and he was running from for uh, against Hillary Clinton. And someone asked Hillary, do you consider yourself a liberal? And she said, you know, I consider myself more of a progressive, which has a rich American history dating back to the turn of the century. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go back and find out what those folks were. And eugenics were a huge part of it. You're talking about uh, people like Margaret Sanger, who referred to to right. black people as human weeds and she felt the same way about chinese as she did about black people and and said horrific things like the best thing you could do for a child who was born to a large family was smother that child these were evil evil people and as much and don't get me wrong the nazis were horrible but they learned it from us first in fact if i'm not mistaken the first forced sterilization in the western world happened in indiana under this eugenics movement i'm sure that and, and margaret singer is the founder of planned parenthood absolutely you know, so yep that's the whole the whole life right anyway stanley hall is the first to earn a phd in american psychology he's the first doctor first phd in america in psychology and that's a whole nother discussion and we won't get off onto that but his favorite his hero was Charles Darwin, which naturally meant that John Dewey's hero became Charles Darwin. And this is what he wrote about this, because in and he says that Dewey wrote the origin of species marked an epoch in the development of the natural sciences, a mode of thinking that would transform morals, politics, and religion. And then he also wrote that Darwin single-handedly dispensed with 2,000 years of the fixed and final. What does it mean fixed and final? It means absolute truth. So Darwin single-handedly dispensed with 2,000 years of Christ, the absolute yeah. truth. Got rid of him. Yep. He's out. Right? <laughs> you, I know how the story turns out, but I still find myself sitting here going, don't do it. Don't. Do it. Never mind. You're going to do it anyway. There so. we go, right? <laughs> So John Dewey becomes a humanist. And it's kind of interesting to think about what the modern education, what the universities really are. At the heart of the modern university is the idea that man's intellect is greater than God. That's the whole thing. It's focus on the intellect and they glorify human reason. And that's now, and, and at first you might think, well, that's really cool that we learn how to reason each other outright, but it's a way of divorcing us from our creator to think that we are now the smart guys, right? We moved past what Jesus Christ can offer us, and now we can be smart ourselves. Anytime I hear someone glorifying human reason, I'm like, 
go look inside go just go to work for a day inside of a government office building i worked inside of, of a government office building for a year and a half and i had to leave that will change your mind really quickly yep. so dewey it's we're not absolutely certain that he writes the humanist manifesto but he definitely had the biggest influence and he was the most notable signer of the humanist manifesto published in 1933. Okay, so the humanist manifesto, manifesto included these things that the universe is self-existing and not created. <laughs> so there, you know, God's out of that. Man is a part of nature and has emerged as a result of a continuous process. Evolution. evolution. The nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. In other words, what we just said in the Constitution about these unalienable rights given to us by God is now not given to us by God. There is no, it's a complete refutation of the things of liberty that we stand for as a nation. Mm. Mm -mm. So John Dewey is essentially the humanist prophet. Now, Dave, this is going to tick you off because it sure did me. He said the school is primarily a social institution. <laughs> Education is the regulation of the process of coming to share in the social consciousness. Oh, geez. We cannot know anything for certain. This is the humanist manifesto laid out for us, okay? God is a faded piece of metaphysical goods. Oh. <laughs> and here's the best one. The teacher is the prophet and the true God and the usher in of the true kingdom of God. God. That's about as straight up as you can get, isn't it? It, it? At this point, you can't refute that they didn't know what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. They had a goal in mind, which was to supplant the family and god and replace it with the state starting from the earliest age possible they could get their hands on our on our children that's right so if you think about what nephi saw when he saw this great and abominable church and it's happening right side by side the embodiment of the constitution and the declaration of independence of this new nation these things are happening side by side. And so these things happen and we, we can literally see them being played out in the forward movement of what education is. It literally is embodying, it's becoming a part of this great and abominable church. It's the two opposing viewpoints. And you know, and we started wrong. I mean, that that's the other thing, right? Is that um, not completely, but by certainly by 1859, right? We're, that's the bulk of our history as a nation, right? There's more history that's happened since 1859 than 1859 back to 1776. Well, and I, I, you know, I think though that it's kind of all, when we start talking about the restoration, it's really not 1830. The restoration started with Columbus in 1892 or right. 1492, sorry. But I think even before that, the printing press is discovered in 
1453. I think that's really where the Reformation movement started. This is where um, Martin Luther nails his thesis on the doors of the of the cathedral in in Germany. This this movement is a battle, and it's a back and forth. It's like a literal battle where you have these these things going back and forth. As Christ is moving forward, the restoration, preparing this, and Satan is freaking out. He knows right now. I think he knows his time, his days are counted, and he's he does not know the mind and will of God. He doesn't know the timing. He doesn't have all that knowledge, but he sees the things, and I think he's freaking out. And I think that this has all been a lead up to where we need to wake up and be aware what battle we're fighting. Absolutely. And what's funny, Russ, is I think there's a lot of other people that feel that, right? I think that that, that feeling of, of an event that's on the horizon is, I think everyone can feel that it's closer these days. I agree. I agree. So that's the education thing, but let's now take a different direction. Let's talk about the origins of modern science. And we talked a little bit about this on our first podcast. We're going to jump into it a little bit more just to kind of connect it into this, this whole mix right here. So James Hutton is a part of the Scottish Enlightenment. Anytime you hear the word enlightenment, you can know that this is about how man's intellect is replacing God. So whether it's the enlightenment of the dark ages whether it's the scottish enlightenment it's whatever you ever hear the word enlightenment what they're really saying is that man's intellect is now greater than god's and we finally woke up okay so he's a part of that shift he's he's in that movement of this so-called superior human reasoning and it's a stark shift from just about 150 years before they had this the uh, scottish covenant the national covenant where the scottish people signed a covenant that they would protect and defend the protestant religion they would defend god and so now the enlightenment has come along to start the replacement of that james hutton is considered the father of geology he's the guy that sort of sets the stage he's not the first guy that talked about a hot molten earth but he's he's the guy that's the most influential in this and he publishes his theory of the earth in 1788 Okay, and he convinces most of his fellow geologists that the earth is incalculably calculably old. Another interesting tie is 1788 is the same time the Constitution is ratified. So you, you're seeing these two kind of things happening here. But the Constitution doesn't make that huge of an event yet. It's just starting. And his theories published in 1788 also don't really make this big deal, but it starts, right? It starts this movement. And it's poorly written. And so it's forgotten until he dies in 1797. It kind of goes away. But this guy comes along, Charles Lyell. And Charles Lyell is a he's a well-published, well-respected author. And he refuses to accept the flood or the testimony of Noah as recorded in Genesis. He becomes very anti-biblical all the way, refuses any kind of catastrophism. And then he's smart, though. He says... Don't form an opinion until you've read my theory. Okay, don't form an opinion from history. That's Genesis. Everybody knew Genesis is history. Now, this is what he says, though. This is pretty sly. He says, if you don't triumph over them, that means you and me, Dave, and all these other people that believe in the Bible. If you don't triumph over them, but compliment them, 
the liberality and the candor of the present age. And the bishops and enlightened saints will join us in despising both the ancient and the modern. Now it says, you know, he wrote physical theologians, but what he really said, that's, that's prophets. Cool. The saints, the bishops and saints will join us in despising the ancient and modern prophets. Wow. Just tell them how great they are. Tell them how smart they are. They'll come. They'll join us. And pretty soon, we'll have the saints saying that your prophets are wrong. And how did that happen? Well, he published his Principles of Geology in 1830. So just like the Constitution had sort of on its thrust, right? And we see the Constitution is actually tested pretty heavily in 1860s with the, Revol uh, the Civil War. Right. So this is about to test everything, too. Principles of Geology is wildly popular. It's reprinted, re reprinted 12 times, and it convinces the whole science of the Earth's extreme age. Now, the, you know, the important thing to note here is that we often think that evolution is the fight. But I think the age of the Earth is a much more important fight, because if you have the age of the Earth established, as it says in the Bible, evolution has nothing. It falls apart. Yeah, because it can't stand. If, if the Earth isn't billions and billions and billions of years old, there's certainly not enough time for evolution to kick in as it's been described that's right let's talk about the next guy charles darwin he's a humanist scientist and as a young boy darwin was a pretty dark child he beat a puppy simply for the sense of power that he got from it oh. and he, he loved to kill birds by pounding on their heads with a hammer and so this you know he's kind of now if you said that really happened he You'd say if your kid were doing that, you'd say, you know, something's something's a little wrong. He loved to hunt. By 17, he killed animals for the joy of killing. He would go hunting. He just absolutely loved hunting. And um, he was an, a very avid hunter. He said, I do not believe that anyone could have shown more zeal for the most holy cause than I did for shooting birds. How well I remember killing my first snipe. My excitement was so great that I had much difficulty in reloading my gun from the trembling of my hands. <laughs> you know, it, I'm a hunter, right? However, that isn't the same kind of reverence that you would show when you kill an animal. Right. I mean, that, that that is more sadistic than than a hunter. For sure. So there's it's it's about his life, too, about, you know, he actually when he's young, he has this vibrance and he loves nature and he sees things and he's he's exploring things. But there's some definitely some underlying things that are going on. By the time he's 22 years old, he's getting on board the HMS Beagle. And the captain of the Beagle, James Fitzroy, gives Darwin a copy of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology that's published one year before. So this Principles of Geology is, is this catalyst. And Darwin says that it opened his 
eyes to how evolution could work because it was so this deep time. Incidentally, Darwin took his own book. The book he chose to take were the 12 volume set of uh, John Milton's um, Paradise Lost. Now, Paradise Lost is another one of those classics that's probably on a lot of people's shelves. And it's written, it's about the, it's about the um, Garden of Eden and the casting out and expulsion of Adam and Eve. But it's actually written from Satan's point of view. Right. So it's not, it's not this glorious thing that adds light. It's written from, you know, poor Satan and how he fared. Okay, so this is the influence. And anyway, this principles of geology is the influencer of Charles Darwin's own ideas on evolution. And then he publishes The Origin of the Species in 1859. Here's the kick. Origin of the Species is the most influential book in history. It outranks the Bible, the Quran, and the Marxist Communist Manifesto. Hmm. In China, they don't know about Christ, but they know about Darwin. And it isn't just the origin of a species either. Okay, It's that how deeply it's entrenched in our universities. Less than half of the Christian universities in America oppose Darwinian evolution. That's Christian universities. BYU, USU, UVU, and U of U all embrace evolution. All of them. Not just a little. They fully embrace it. And that that's a it's crazy when you stop to think that it's still a theory, right? You still can't prove much of what Darwin said because there's 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 missing parts all over. If 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 Darwin was correct, we should expect to see certain things that we just don't see and we don't find at all, Russ. Right. Here's the thing, though, is that because evolution is divided into microevolution and macroevolution, there's this endless debate over evolution's true if it's adaptation versus speciation. And so there's this kind of ongoing quarrel about this versus that. And, you know, we could definitely make a dive and we should probably do another podcast and talk about just evolution and the laws of life. But just know this, evolution cannot work if there's not billions of years. So the fight isn't evolution. The, the, we need to go look at the Bible. This is how the Bible, the, the entire first part of the Bible is about geology and science and weather and meteorology and all the other things that are happening. It's a science book. And it actually defines and describes a creation account that's very scientific and very sound in its origin. And, and that's the thing is read the Bible from a science point of view and it's actually far more simple and easy to understand. And it's not billions of years. That's our fight. Right. Yeah, no, you're and, and you make an excellent point. And I'll I'll it's something I never put my finger on, right? I always assumed Darwin was was the guy you had to kind of contend with, but maybe it's a, not maybe you, you make a darn good case for us that it's it's geology we have to look at first. Well, if you think about um, in the in the book in the Bible, 
and it's referred to in the Book of Mormon, but the writer says, well, you have the book that proceeds forth in the mouth of a Jew, so you have the creation. I'm not going to include it. So we have the creation account, which is geology in the very first part of it. And then part of the temple endowment is, is, is showing the creation account. It's so important that God wants to show that creation account over and over and over. He wants it embedded in our minds about how the creation is supposed to happen. So right. geology and the creation is important enough to God that that's what he wants us to know. Absolutely. So today, Darwin is the most recognized person in the world. In the world. He's the most recognized. Isn't that crazy? That's nuts. You'd think it would be Christ or you'd think of something else, but it's actually Darwin. Darwin is the most recognized person in the world. And you could probably take a picture of this right here and, and go to any university and almost everyone would recognize it. And a, probably a decent percentage would not even know who their state senator is or who their, you know, sometimes even the president. Right. But they know this guy. Mm. Darwinian evolution is embraced and accepted at 99% of all American universities, all of them, Christian or non-secular, 99% of all universities in America embrace Darwinian evolution, and even a higher percentage in European universities. And Darwinian evolution is accepted in universities around the globe. And not only that, we like to put our kids in front of simple benign things like planet Earth. Well, all the shows about animals, landscapes, history, even cultural shows always, always bring in evolution. This evolved, this was billions of years old, and that evolved to do this and that and so forth. Yeah, you're no, you're a hundred percent correct. I know that's something that my my five-year-old granddaughter crawled up on my lap and said you know, Pappy, did you know the earth is way older, even older than you? And I knew what she was getting at. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm pretty old. And so, but uh, it, it, you're right. It doesn't take them long because it's everywhere, Russ. They're, we're saturated with it. Right. So this is kind of the big picture of modern science. If we were to put it out there, we would say that all humans have evolved from an ape-like ancestor. They'll always get you if you say you evolved from apes because they don't say that. They say that you evolved from an ancestor that the apes evolved from, like you have a common one. Okay, so we evolved from common ape-like ancestors who evolved from bacteria. And where did that come from? That came from chemicals. And chemicals came from the Big Bang, and the Big Bang came from nothing. And I have a book actually just sitting here on my desk. It's called the universe from nothing and it describes stephen hawking describes how the universe came from nothing okay so that the whole modern science construct is literally based on that structure of modern science is based on a foundation of nothing so when he sees that when nephi and lehi see this building in the air floating as it were in the air on a foundation of nothing that's actually a literal interpretation of what modern science is mm. built on. It's built on the concept of everything came from nothing before the Big Bang. It's kind of interesting how perfectly literary, liter literally that is, isn't it? It is. 
So let me ask you this, because I don't want to take away from anything. Are we going to get at any point here into what the, what the, uh, the fruits are of believing this? Yeah. And probably you should break this when you, when you do publish it, maybe into two. And um, let's just, let's jump into, I want to do one more thing. I want to tie it to the church because this makes it more relevant. You know, we've talked about all the sciences, but now let's talk about the church. And it doesn't really matter where you come from in the church, whether you're from um, any divergent group or the mainstream church or anything. It's There's some commonality here, sure. even though it might not be the same thing, because we're all influencing each other. Sure. So the story starts on this part with a guy named George Tanner. Now, George Tanner is one of the Tanner family that his ancestor, John Tanner, is one that's often recited in a and how he brought a lot of money to help Joseph Smith out. Okay, so he's a part of the Tanner family. He's an institute director at the University of Idaho. Okay, he's a descendant of this John Tanner, so he has these promises, and he became the institute director in 1931 uh, in the University of Idaho, okay? But he's a progressive, and he's he's this intellectual Mormon who taught his students, one in particular, a guy named Leonard Arrington, Christianity and science could be compatible and that other translations of the Bible could assist him in his interpretation of the Bible. So he's he's kind of setting this guy. Now, he's an LDS guy. He's teaching Institute, and he's literally teaching his students that um, evolution and biblical criticism are okay. Is this the first time within... Um, Mormonism that that we see somebody of any stature begin to make that that leap that oh, hey heaven, no. not at all okay no no because um, John A Witzow who is an apostle actually goes back to get his letters from back East University and he's a trained biologist and he's influential in getting the University of Utah um, cre- um, sorry USU Utah State University accredited in Logan. And then James Talmadge goes and he becomes a geologist. And so he's trained on principles of geology. So he, whether his intent is, I don't believe he, either one of these guys had intent. I think they were just trained in the modern scholarship. And then they were just trying to bring it together because James Talmadge helped get BYU accredited and University of Utah accredited. So these two guys brought in some of this stuff and, and did it. What's different though, is that, John A. Witzow, even though he's a biologist, still affirms the divinity of Adam and still talks about the creation process, right? So he's he's blending his theology. Well, this guy's a lot more progressive, and he's full-on evolutionist. So he teaches Leonard Arrington that it's okay to be an evolutionist, and and Arrington does. Um, he's He becomes this full-blown evolutionist. And he's the church historian from 1972 to 1982 for 10 years. He's the He's the church historian, and he embraces evolution while he's at the University of Idaho. He, and he tells people that I now accept these things that I used to not, but now I'm, I'm, I used to be very violently opposed to them, but now I've accepted them. He also accepts biblical criticism. And what that really means is that the Bible is a collection of things written by man. They're not inspired. They're not necessarily revelation from God. They're just a collection of writings that have to do with the time and the age, okay? 
But it gets a little bit more dicey with this. He actually says that Jesus's life and ministry simply could not have taken place the way they're depicted in the gospel. Jeez. So how does he become church historian? The idea was Joseph Fielding Smith was church historian for 40 years. And the only reason he stepped away from it is because he's called as the prophet of the of the church. He stayed church historian while he was an apostle. And then he had to step down from that. And then that was given for two years to Howard Hunter and then replaced by Leonard Arrington because they kind of wanted this new, uh, more professionally trained. They actually brought him in because he was professionally trained and they wanted this kind of progressive idealism was creeping in and they wanted somebody more professional. And he was, he was constantly being called on the carpet, especially by Ezra Taft Benson. That was a big battle in, in his time. Mm-hmm. He wrote, this is Arrington himself wrote that he was unable to reconcile scientific truth regarding the book of Mormon with what he assumed to be elements of religious truth. He literally doubted the Book of Mormon's truthfulness or historicity. Now, he admitted that he only ever read through the Book of Mormon one time in his life. He also said that he he said that Joseph thought he saw the father and the son in a mystical sense and that the Book of Mormon did not exist in a concrete, literal sense and said the scriptures are not themselves divine revelation. Holy cow. So, you know, this is. You bring this in, and even though, that's why I say it doesn't really matter, because all the divergent groups still read the history that is coming out of BYU. They're still reading yeah. the book. You know, the, the the papers, Joseph Smith papers, the words of Joseph, um, teachings of the prophet Joseph that was compiled by Joseph Fielding Smith. So we've all grown up. No matter where you come from, if you're Mormon at all, you've come from and read and been influenced by these things that are coming down the pipe. Oh, man. Talk about letting the enemy inside the gate. Right. So Leonard Arrington sets in motion the rewriting of the traditional Latter-day Saint history from top to bottom. Okay, He changes it by taking out the miracles and focusing on the economics okay that's the the lot of the way that not just in mormon history but in all of christian history they take out the miracles or the workings and they try to turn it into a mechanical um you're doing this for the purpose of making money it's all about survival of the fittest it's all about getting and whoever's the most economically you know um successful so that's what Leonard Arrington did too. He took out some of the miracles and spent in the rewrite of the LDS church history. He spent 10 pages talking about ZCMI and took out the spiritual things that, that had happened to the saints when they came to the Valley. And in some ways that seems kind of Marxian, if that's a good way of putting it, because it's, it's almost like he's setting up this idea of the, uh, oppressed versus the oppressor class right because you're if, if you if you take out the miracles and it's just a um treatise on economy well that was kind of marxist marxist yeah i propose that it's more luciferian because okay. he's, you know marxist is serving 
that's the common here is the is lucifer satan he is the common thread in all of this right so leonard errington he's now dead and he's passed on and he has whatever his just rewards are but this guy's still alive richard bushman he he was the acolyte of errington in fact errington was training him to be the new guy yep you know, for whatever reason, and, and he's pretty successful. He served as the editor for the Joseph Smith Papers and now serves on the National Advisory Board for them. So he's he's influential. He's been called one of the most important scholars of American religious history in the late 20th century. And he taught at Columbia, BYU, Harvard, Austin, the University of Delaware. So he's pretty well credentialed, right? He's the guy that has all the stuff. And he publishes this book in 2005, Rough Stone Rolling. Now, Rough Stone Rolling disparages the Smith family. It, yep. This takes us all the way back to Nathaniel Hawthorne and the magic and the witches and that kind of stuff. And this is what, what Bushman did is he actually, um, Richard Bushman took the magic of those witchcraft areas and he tries to infuse it into the Smith family. And he does it through the use of all anti-Mormon material. He, there's no accounts, no contemporary accounts that have the Smith family involved in any kind of witchcraft whatsoever. But Bushman puts it out there and gives the credibility from these anti-Mormon publications and gives them the same reliability as Joseph's own friends. So let's, let's, go, let's go find Dave's enemies and we're going to listen to them. And we're going to not talk to your friends. We're going to talk to your enemies. And that's who we're going to believe the most. And that's what Richard Bushman did in, in Rough Stone Rolling. You know, and it, it, it doesn't stop. I just, Russ, I ju- just last, uh, just yesterday, no, Saturday, excuse me, just Saturday, I did a podcast on debunking the latest theory around Joseph Smith, which was he was taking mushrooms and that's how he got his visions. I mean, <laughs> It never stops. That's just crazy. It's nuts. So um, 100,000 copies have been sold. And this guy right here is (laughs) Don (laughs) DeLynn. And in fact, I, um, you know, I, I like to just talk about John DeLynn and about how he uses rough stone rolling. He, he sets up his vidcast with the book Rough Stone Rolling and No Man Knows My History kind of set up behind him. So when you're looking at him, you're seeing these two things, right? Yep. I have a quick clip. Can I play a clip for you? Please do. Please do. Well, I've gone around the world and I've asked now tens of thousands of people who have lost their faith in the Mormon church, what was the cause of them leaving their church? Guess what one of the top 10 answers is? Maybe even top five. Rough stone rolling. So you've got you've got the guy that's the most prolific anti-Mormon of our day straight up telling us rough stone rolling is anti-Mormon. Yeah, and 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 it gets worse than that, even Russ, because I saw a like a, a video clip on somebody's phone of um, Bushman giving like this private fireside somewhere here in Utah. And he, 
And basically, he says, we have to rewrite our history. Right. If the church wants to survive, if Mormonism wants to survive, we have to rewrite the history. But rewrite it with take, what? Yeah, and we've got to take Joseph off his pedestal. We we got to, you know, that, that, let's destroy our history. Let's yeah. destroy it. Somehow that's going to help us survive. And, you know, I, I talked to Hannah Stoddard about the same thing, right? What it's the same pattern. If you look at what they did to the founders, right? Which was, if you want to quote, progress past the constitution, you first have to progress past the founders. And so they discredited the founders. And I think now we're at a point to where we're starting to see that same uh, tactic being used within Mormonism. For sure. That's exactly right. The same person who wrote, no man knows my history, Fawn Brody. She also wrote a book to disparage Thomas Jefferson. That's where the whole yep. idea of Sally Hastings, the child that, you know, that's born out of wedlock to one of his slaves, that all comes from the same mindset where she does this psychological, psychological analysis of these two people. And, of, uh, and so, yeah, Joseph Smith and, and Thomas Jefferson both get to fall under her, her mighty pen. And and the thing is, is once those narratives take root, good luck, because even a DNA test that clearly showed that that Sally's kids weren't Jefferson's. Right. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. Right. The narrative is there. The narrative is set. And that's what's been grabbed hold of. Well, I'm going to show you a picture here, because this is what you're going to see if you go to BYU today to the Bean Life Sciences Museum. This is a full-on evolution exhibit showing the evolution of man and showing the evolution of the skulls of these. And in on their official page, they say the church has no official position on the theory of evolution. And so they've kind of set this whole stage that it's true, that we shouldn't be looking at the scriptures, we should just be looking at science. The organic evolution or changes inherited traits over time is a matter for scientific study, their website says. In other words, it's not a matter to be discussing in religion. It's all about science. Now, if you go to that same museum and you decide to go to the second floor, you're going to go up a series of steps that will lead you <laughs> with a serpent to the second floor. At BYU. At BYU. So the universities are literally the new temples to this ancient religion. How, how do they get away with it, though, right? Why doesn't, why hasn't someone stepped in and said enough? Enough, right? You want that, go to, go to Harvard, go to Yale, go to anywhere else. How does that survive? How does that thrive at BYU? Well, it's maddening. This is where we turn the corner. BNC 86, the wheat and the tares. Now, whenever the, the Savior gave a parable, he used the parable to teach a lesson. And Joseph Smith actually did a lot of the same things. So we can look at nature as, as our thing. And what he said is that in section 86 is the field is the world and the apostles are the sowers of the seed this is the this is how the lord is interpreting 
the wheat and the tares to Joseph Smith. So I encourage you to read the whole section 86, but the, I'm just extracting a couple things here. And after they've fallen asleep, now there's only two times the apostles are on the earth, right? You've right. either got the time of Christ or the time of Joseph. So when he's receiving this revelation, he says, after they have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, that maketh all nations to drink of her cup, in whose hearts the enemy, even Satan, sits to reign, behold, he soweth the tares. Wherefore, the tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness. This, the same wording in the wheat and the tares that he's describing here is actually the words that Nephi uses to describe the great and abominable church. So these things are kind of side by side, okay? So the tares are planted. The, the apostles fall asleep. The tares get planted. And in the same section, it says, let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. I think we're fully ripe. And the, the thing we need to do now is gather out the wheat from among the tares. To me, that is, go get your children out. Get your children out from among the tares. Get them out of the school. And that's really what we need to do. There's, we, we need to ask this question, is there really no official position on evolution or the age of the earth? Okay, how do we know about the creation, the fall, or the great flood? Is it, as they say in modern education, is it just a myth, as progressive education tells us? Or you might, here's an even worse one. Did the creator get it wrong when he told Moses how he created the earth? So yeah. where exactly does this new modern science merit narrative come from? So there's a process called eisegesis. That means we take our, our interpretation of the world and we shove it into Genesis. Now, all of us do that to some degree when we're thinking about how to make sense of what we learn in school with what the Bible says. We start blending our theology. We bring in the outside influence and we force it into Genesis. Is, is we it kind of like the philosophies of men mingled with scripture? Precisely. Yeah. Just, this just is what we really should be doing is taking what Genesis says and then using it to interpret the world. Okay, so this question that is posed clear back in AD 33 when Christ is standing before Pontius Pilate and Pilate asked this question, I think this is hugely important. What is truth? And Christ had already answered that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So in 1833, Joseph Smith receives a revelation, and he says, in this revelation, Christ is speaking to Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams, the first presidency of the church. So there's no higher authority. He's speaking to all of us, and this is encoded in section 93, I've commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. And then he says, but you have not taught your children light and truth according to the commandments, and that wicked one has power as yet over you, and this is the cause of your affliction. Now, if we take it in context of our day today, the cause of our affliction is we haven't been teach teaching them light and truth. And then the Lord gives him a commandment. He says, if you will be delivered, you shall set in order your own house, for there are many things that are not right in your house. 
Okay, so he's turning it back to us, to our own homes. This is fathers, mothers, look at your own homes. This is where you need to do, okay? So we should ask this question, what is light and truth? In DNC 93, it says the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. So we need to teach our kids the glory of God. And then this is something else that's pretty cool. He says the truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. So truth is knowledge of things, right? Right. What's What's the tree that Adam and Eve were told that they cannot partake of or it would bring death? Knowledge of good and evil. Well, the, it's the tree of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And we say of good and evil, and that kind of diminishes what we just said. So truth is knowledge. And if it's the true, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then what is it? The fruit of the tree of truth. Right. So they're partaking of this truth which is light. And remember, Lehi partakes of the fruit of the tree of light, right? It's, it's white and it's right. light. Yeah. No, he, he goes out of his way to say it was white above all other white he'd seen to that point. And yeah, no, you're right. So, so that's what it is, is that that's light. That's the truth right there. That's knowledge of truth and light. It's all, it's all tied together. And that's the one that the, great and abominable church is mocking that church that's up in the air is mocking the people that are participating in the partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge that's the fruit that we're here on earth to take to partake of okay now talk about we've been talking about 1830 and all these things that are going on right this right. is when all of modern science is adopting the whole idea of a, of a billions of year old earth and evolution, okay, 1830. Well, this is the same year that Principles of Geology is published. It's also the same year the Book of Mormon is published. Yeah. But two months after the Book of Mormon is published, Joseph receives a revelation to translate the Bible. Okay. And, and the translation of the Bible, this is in July of 1830, the very first thing that happens is he receives a revelation about Moses and what happened with Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay, and Moses has a council, he's a, he's a, he has his council with the creator. He goes up to the burning bush, right? And it says, take your, the, put the shoes off your feet. So he's right. actually meeting with the creator. And the creator tells him things, and, and you can read Moses and, you know, know, know the most of it. I'm going to just draw out a couple of points here. As one, he says, Moses, I will speak to you concerning the earth upon which you stand. And I want you to write the things which I shall speak. This is in the Revelation. We can read it as Moses chapter one, if you have an inspired version. Um, we actually have those. I, I bought a thousand of those Bibles. It'll be here in July. I mean, January. Wow. Of the inspired version, deluxe leather version. And anyway, you can read this as the revelation that Joseph Smith receives. And then chapter one of Genesis or Moses chapter two, it says, it came to pass, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I reveal unto you concerning this heaven and this earth. Write the words which I speak. So he tells him, I'm going to tell you. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you. Now let's compare these two, okay? First of all, in the King James Version, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, 
and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, in the inspired version, it changes it to this. Yea, in the beginning, I created the heaven and the earth upon which thou standest. And the earth was without form and void, and I caused darkness to come upon the face of the deep. And my spirit moved upon the face of the waters, for I am God, and I, God, said, let there be light, and there was light. You see the difference? Yeah. In the original King James, it is in third person narrative. But in the inspired version, it is in first person narrative. It is the creator telling my story. It's my story. Right. Now, the, yeah. The Lord's talking to Moses, just like you said. Moses, write this down. And he's telling him my story of how I created the heaven and the earth. He's not making a mistake or an assumption or telling him to go grab some information from some Babylonian text. He's telling him, this is my story. And to me, that's about as official in a position as you can get Absolutely. in our church. This is from Joseph Smith as a revelation given to him by commandment to do it. And we need to literally put that into our brains all the time. So in 1 Nephi chapter 13, it says, They seized the formation of a great and abominable church founded by the devil with the intent of bringing the people into captivity. Hmm. And in chapter 14, it says, There are two churches only. One is the Lamb of God. The other is the church of the devil. And then in section 88, it clarifies that another angel shall say the great church, the mother of abomination, she's the tares of the earth. So that great church... Remember, there's only two churches. So right. in the NCA, it says that great church, the mother of abomination, she's the tares. And section 88 told us that the enemy plants the tares. You see that, that how that all connects to that? Absolutely. So it comes down to simply this. This is a story of three prophets, no matter what side you want to be on. It's a story of three prophets, either the three prophets called of God, Moses, who receives this revelation from God, this is how I did it. Joseph Smith, who receives and actually meets Moses, by the way, meets him in the Kirtland Temple. Yep. Nephi, who prophesies of it. So these three together form this triune of, of prophets that tell of the creation, tell of the lie that's going to be told, warn against that, and receive the revelation to teach, to tell us, you better teach your children the light and truth, which is the true creation. Set and order your houses. Or you can choose to believe these guys, Charles Lyell, Charles Darwin, and Karl Marx. That's that's really what it comes down to. Which of those two are the prophets in your home that get the most credibility? Now, we probably have some of both. But I would submit we need to get rid of one group and teach our children light and truth so russ real quick and and i'm just going to ask you to be blunt honest i'm a guy who values just being blunt it's what i love about the gospel is that there, there's not a lot of gray area right mm -hmm. let's talk about how 
how we can do that, right? How we can go and get our kids. Because for a lot of folks, and I sympathize with them, right? And, and we saw this during COVID, is that we're now in a society where, where people feel that, that it takes two incomes just to make it work, right? Just to get by. How do we go and get our kids? How do we do that? Well, I'm going to be blunt too, because I think quite frankly, you figure out how to get your kids out of school. If he means you got to live on less, got to sell some of your toys, got to do something. God knows your need. He'll help you do it. Get your kids out of school. And I'm not the only one. There's secular piece. Candace Owens is saying, she said the same thing, get your kids out of school. We've only touched on the on the top level stuff. There are things that are even worse. I think you've got to get your kids out of school. But then even in our own churches, we need to remember that Joseph Smith was given a revelation during the formation of the church that said that we, the church, and he's, and he's speaking, he says, and the church, it says, speaking to the church, that we need to give heed to all his words and commandments. Joseph received the the Bible, the translation, by commandment from God. And they are his words. And if we don't teach them, in section 93 it says, teach them light and truth. And if we do this, if we will teach them truth, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good. That's a promise that was given to us if we will Listen to what Joseph Smith said, and we'll read this, those inspired versions of the gospel. It's absolutely there in front of us. So I would say that. Get your kids out of school. Don't just teach them the classics. Don't take them out and then teach them a secular education. Get into something that you can. And in fact, one of the things we, in our whole philosophy, our homeschool, is the first year, just get them out and have them be by you. Not unschool. Yeah de-school them they yeah. will learn more if if dave sanders kids came home and spent the day with dave and his wife they will learn more than they would ever learn at school just teach them what you know just have conversation you know and realize that the universal model is something that that even you and i didn't grow up with and so how can you teach something you don't know that means you need to learn it with them yeah, and study the the inspired version of the Bible with your kids, not just like gloss over like we're doing and come follow me. That's great that we have that, but we should dive into and study Genesis. The entire gospel is in the first twelve chapters of the inspired version of Genesis. You know, I'm. I usually try to be very measured in in what I say on here because I I. I never want to go off half cocked. However, and I don't say this lightly, we are in a battle for the souls of our children. All of us, whether you're a fundamentalist, whether you're a mainstream LDS guy, whether you're, you know, somewhere in between. I don't care if you're Catholic. I don't care if you're Protestant or Lutheran or whatever the case is. We are right now in a battle for the souls of our children. And if we don't recognize what it is, whether we like it or not, the powers of darkness have declared war on us. And it's going to be up to us to respond, right? 
Now, I'm not talking violence. I'm just talking about getting your kids out of that system, that meat grinder, and bring them home. And I get it. There are sacrifices to be made. We've certainly had to make ours, but it's if we don't, the price is too high. It is too high. I, I agree. It's just, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to make anybody's life hard, but the bottom line is, is we have our first and most important fundamental responsibility is to our children, turning the hearts of our children to us and us turning our hearts to them and figuring out however we got to do it, whatever you can work out with family, with friends, with co-ops, with something. But I, like I say, don't just bring the classics in, find ways that you can teach, that you can fulfill what Joseph said to teach light and truth. And I think the scriptures, you got to integrate the scriptures. And if it teaches something that's not true to scriptures, don't teach it. Don't teach things that teach evolution. It's, you know, I mean, it's okay to teach them in the sense that they need to know because we don't want them to be so ignorant when they get out in the world that they don't know about this. We need to teach them, but we need to expose the darkness. Absolutely. You know, the, the other thing, I remember when we jerked our twins out of school and I worked uh, in a place where uh, this, this lady came and said, you know, I don't think I could ever do that because I'm not qualified. And I just remember thinking, what do you mean you're not qualified? You're you're uniquely qualified to teach your kids. They are our children. We know better than any teacher, any administration, any principal, any school counselor. We are uniquely qualified because they're ours. And I think for too long, we've bought into this lie that unless we have a degree, we, we can't teach our kids. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Dave. That's If there's one thing we could do is convince parents that you're enough. You can do it. You're enough. Don't worry about, don't worry about, they don't need a social group of people to go be taught by their peers. They'll have plenty of opportunity to do it. You know, don't worry about that you don't know enough or that you're going to somehow stifle them. It's just simply not true. No. No, and talk them, teach them, engage them in conversation about things. Yeah. And you know what? If your kids don't fit into this society, good. Good. You've done what you were supposed to. Good. Well, I think that even more than that, let's let's start teaching them to become as I and like people. Yep. Let's teach them the truth and knowledge and let's teach them not to fight and to quarrel and to look for each other and to help out and to do what we're all of us, if, we, if you're baptized, then you've made a commitment to bear the name of Christ and to bear the burdens of others who've made that same commitment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Russ, you're an absolute rock star, dude. I could sit and talk with you all night. I really could. So let's do it again soon because I want to dive back into the science stuff there with the universal model. Yeah, I'd like to too. I, I'm. Uh, I'd like to kind of dive into our our teaching philosophy and how we've taken the universal model and geography and kind of brought it into workbooks that we use and how we use them because it's a little different. Um, it's project based and it's based on conversation. It's not. There's no teacher key. 
Um, actually, the, the Spirit guided us not to do that for the very express reason um, that, that we need to learn how to listen to the Spirit in our teaching. So um, maybe we can do that again. We can jump into the, both the science Absolutely. and that science. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Let's, uh, let's stick around after we end the recording and you and I will work out of time. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Awesome. Thank you, Russ. All right, everyone. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.